This episode of the Cyclist Magazine podcast is brought to you by HVMN's Ketone IQ. Welcome back to another edition of Cyclist Magazine podcast. This week, we're joined by the amazing author, Jeremy Wilson, to give us an insight into the fascinating life of Beryl Borton. James, you are arguably one of the most learned, well-written, well-spoken men I know. So I know you're going to get an exceptional kick out of this chat. Um, I'd suggest that you sort of just change your social group a little bit if that's for us to <laughs> in the pecking order. Thanks very much. Um, I think I'm going to get a kick out of this chat slash whenever I've spoken to people in Jeremy's position. So he's just written a biography on Beryl um, and it is incredibly in-depth. It's definitely worth checking out um, as a book, even though there are others on the subject. This is unique for a variety of reasons, but I end up being humbled by people like him because he's a proper journalist. Do you know what I mean? He's he's won awards, internationally recognized awards. He won the William Hill Sports Book of the Year for this. And he also writes for um, actual newspapers, whereas I write for a magazine. And the last time I checked, magazines will be first against the wall when we have to cut back on things like disposable media. But no, he's he, he will be a fascinating guy because I've read excerpts from the book. But I don't know, have you come across... Does Beryl sit in the kind of Irish cycling herb as, as she does in the UK English one? Because she is a yeah a real kind of folk hero here. No, I'll hands up and say I didn't know who Beryl Burton was before we arranged to have this conversation. But I feel like we do have some of these sort of icons that are immortalized nationally, but they don't probably travel too well. Like we celebrate Shay Elliott, for instance, who maybe a lot of British listeners won't know Shay Elliott's background or the cultural importance to him as, you know, a catalyst for, you know, the likes of Stephen Roach and Sean Kelly to springboard off in later life. But yeah, Beryl Borton hasn't traveled across the, the Atlantic chasm. <laughs> not yet, not until this podcast goes out on uh, both sides of the Irish Sea. Um, no, oh, yeah, I, I do know what you mean. And I think part of it with her is in another lifetime, I mean, even now, okay, so here's a comparison. She she is the Marion Voss of her day. She won everything in a variety of disciplines and i would argue that marianne voss isn't even that well known really it's really sad to say but in the modern era internet social media everything else yes if you're into cycling you've heard of marianne voss probably it's not a definite even then and so back with you know beryl's situation riding in the 50s 60s 70s and 80s very long career there was not a lot of you know attention on a female rider so i kind of yeah she's she's um she's doubly kind of hamstrung I think by um, unfortunately the time she rode and uh, and yeah the fact that you're not in the UK. Yeah, definitely the cultural backdrop of the time period she rode in made it difficult to amplify her message. Like you look even at the vast amount of mediums we have now to amplify those messages across social media. She didn't have that, but also there's a inbuilt sort of reluctance to promote strong independent female athletes at that period in time as well. Yeah, almost, a, I, I, well, I was going to say a reticence. It's a, de- it's a deliberate move not to do it. And it was the same uh, in variety of sports. Except for, I think, tennis, weirdly, has always been had quite a weird amount of kind of parity, I think, anyway, from my layman's position. But yeah, absolutely, there was just like no appetite for it. And, and, the, and the very fact of this, I'm not sure if we'll touch on this, but there was um, a women's Tour de France in 1955, which was won by another Brit called Millie Robinson. And... 1955 what happened after that nothing literally nothing until 1984 that was the next women's tour de france why was there 
a 39, 40-year hiatus in between the two, when apparently the 55 one was quite well received, and the 80s ones were too. And then they were, again, shut down by, when was the last one? In the 1989, didn't last for very long. But what was the catalyst for the 1955 Tour de France? And given that, like to go from zero to one seems like the hardest challenge. To go from one to two doesn't seem as difficult. So whatever that catalyst was, it became no longer relevant in 1956. It seems strange. I think at the time, people said that the, it was, the, the kind of turnout on the roads was misconstrued. And a lot of people saw people coming out to watch the women a little bit like, and you know, excuse this as an awfully clumsy phrase, but almost like a freak show, like a thing that shouldn't happen, to go and spectate and witness as opposed to support, when actually that wasn't the case at all. But that's how ultimately the people running the Tour de France at the time, so the, the Society of uh, Friends of the Tour, whatever they were, the, yeah, which then became ASO, they chose to kind of, they were waiting for it to fail and they were looking for reasons to shut it down. I have no idea why. And now the ASO is headed up um, by a woman, uh, Marie LeBlanc, I want to say. So, you know, ASO itself has, it has chops, but it has a strange, uh, yeah, strange reticence to want to promote the women's sport. There's been many plaudits for Jeremy's amazing book, but a common thread that runs through all of them is how thoroughly well-researched it is. So I'm really excited to jump in and to chat with Jeremy and to get him to shine a light on one of Britain's greatest ever writers, Beryl Borton. So welcome to the Cyclist Magazine podcast, Jeremy Wilson. Jeremy, welcome to the Cyclist Magazine podcast. Thanks for having me. Jeremy, congratulations on the 2022 William Hill Sports Book of the Year Award. Thank you. It's very kind of you. Uh, the title is kind of interesting, Beryl, In Search of Britain's Greatest Athlete, Beryl Borton. I'm wondering, was this actually a search? Did you consider anyone else for this role? <laughs> well, I, uh, the book was obviously always going to be about Beryl Burton, so I suppose that was the starting point. So the uh, the title was fitted around the subject, but... The more I looked into her career and the more I researched it and the more I spoke to people and tried to compare as much as I could with other cyclists and other athletes, I thought it was quite a justified title. I didn't I didn't feel like um, it was sort of hyperbole and it was over the top. I, I really did think this, the things that she did were just so extraordinary, so out there, really. You know, to win something 25 years in a row, she was British best all-rounder 25 times in a row. Couldn't find any other parallel with that in sport. Uh, to, to beat a men's record, you know, the 12-hour record that she, she beat, which, which was better than the women's and men's record at the time in 1967. Uh, again, couldn't find any other comparison with that. I suppose you want to get people's attention a little bit with the title as well and say, hey, what about this athlete that a lot of people, I know in cycling a lot of people will know about her, but even within cycling it's quite surprising how that, that it's certainly not everybody. And then obviously once you step beyond cycling and certainly beyond Yorkshire, the knowledge of her, even amongst quite famous athletes I discovered, is is pretty minimal. So, yeah, you want to get people's attention a little bit with the title, but I sort of felt in the end that it was more than more than justified. And funnily enough, I've not had too many people, maybe people are polite, but I've not had too many people sort of try and argue against that idea. Where You know, I, I know these debates, I, I don't want to sort of make out there too serious, but I, I haven't found anyone that's sort of too questioning of it and, and just enjoys 
celebrating her story and, and her achievements, which, as I say, are utterly jaw-dropping, in my opinion, anyway. So for, for those people um, unfamiliar, as you say, there are an alarming number of them. Um, could you give us a kind of a bit of a potted history um, of Beryl's career? She was born in, in the 30s. Is that right? And she and she was competing, as you say, like twenty five consecutive all round the time trial domestic titles. You know, just off the bat, just just that twenty five big trophies in a row. But also was competing for around thirty years. Uh, ended up riding with her her daughter as well. What? How did she, as a woman born in nineteen thirty seven, make it into a world of cycling which was both amateur and highly male dominated? Yeah, she was born in nineteen thirty seven, so she obviously came out of the the war years, lived, lived, was a child during the Second World War and Leeds was actually bombed quite a bit during the, the war. So there's quite a lot of interesting childhood stories of how she was moving between houses, different family members as, as a young girl. And then she came out of the, the war and it was quite a significant period for her because she um, was very, very good at school, quite a sort of perfectionist at school and was doing her 11 plus and she had an attack of the nervous system while she was actually doing this 11 plus exam. Uh, went down with rheumatic fever and an illness called St. Vitus dance. Um, it was life threatening. It you know, paralyzed one side of her body. And she ended up in hospital and then convalescing in a convent for two years. And it seemed like away from her family completely who, who lived in, in Leeds. And it seemed like this had a real galvanising effect on her her life because she was quite angry at, at, at what had happened to her. Um, obviously thought that the, the 11 plus wasn't the best system to organise somebody's future. And she she had this real burning, ferocious desire to be to be somebody. And then after that, she um, she went to work at the age of 15 in a factory in Leeds and met who was to be her future husband, Charlie Burton, who was a club cyclist in Morley. And then really her, her cycling took off from then. She found a sort of vehicle for this desire to be, be someone, to, to be great at something, and just went from strength to strength and never really lost that, that desire to be her very best, that desire to keep winning. Um, she went from, her, she won her first national time to trial title in 1958 and I won her last in 1986. She won 122 national titles in between um, on the road, on the track and in time trialing. She was seven times world champion as well, but she never got the chance to complete in the Olympics because women weren't allowed in the Olympics until 1984. She never had a women's Tour de France available to her. The first incarnation of that was 1984 as well no commonwealth games for women and cycling was really quite regressive even compared to other international sports if she was an athlete a runner if she was a swimmer she would have been able to go in the olympics even in the in the in the 60s in the 70s in the in the late 50s so um how she's judged i suppose was quite restricted because of the fact that those events weren't available to her but you know had there been a time trial in the olympics i can't see there's a much doubt she would have won every version of it from 1960 to 1980 she was still getting faster in time trials in the late 70s uh she slowed a bit down on the track where the sort of speed element was was more important in pursuits and road racing 
Uh, she was at her best in the 1960s, but time trialing, she was still phenomenal right up to the early 1980s. So I think you're talking six consecutive Olympics there quite very, very, very plausibly, in my opinion. And then also road race pursuit. So she would have had an incredible resume if there'd have been those events open to her that we traditionally judge cyclists on. But what she did do was still incredible. I mean, she's the only British cyclist to be a road race champion, world champion twice. She's won more pursuit medals than any other cyclist in world championships. And then obviously all the domestic titles that I mentioned were just completely out of this world compared to anyone that's ever done domestic time trialing before. So she still did these amazing things, even though the scene for women was quite restricted. Uh, She was fortunate, though, because the World Championships for Women came in in 1958, which just coincided with when she became really competitive on the world stage. So she did have that international event to go for. And then really, she just loved competing against the men domestically. She, I mean, that was a big part of her yearly competition because there was obviously no international scene for women in the way that there was a men's continental scene on on the road with professional teams. So she did have that. She had that yearly world championships against women. And then just week to week, she just loved competing against the best British men in time trials. And she was she was beating most of them for for a, for a good number of years. Jeremy, how formative do you think the sort of hardship she grew up around was? I'm just I'm contrasting in my mind the sort of real soft culture we seem to be in at the moment, and positioning that against some of the. I'm not sure if you've read Road to Valor about Gino Bartolet smuggling forged documents during the war. It's a, it's an amazing read if you haven't read it. But growing up in and around the war that has to give you like a real fortitude and a a reference point for when times are hard, you can look back at it. Because I always think the worst thing that's ever happened to you is the worst thing that's ever happened to you. If you're a spoiled child grown up and the hardest thing that's ever happened to you is your iPad is dropped and cracked. That's your reference point for the worst thing that's ever happened to you. But Beryl, grown up in such a difficult situation, she had a really difficult, hard reference points when life got hard, when racing got hard. How formative do you think that was in her character? I think it is really formative. And I think that, because she would often talk about that childhood trauma that she had when she when she was very sick as a child and spent, as I say, she was in hospital for nine months and then she was sent to Southport to convalesce away from her family to live with nuns. 15 months and her daughter thinks that that was very significant because she said you know at the age of she was between the ages of 11 and 13 when that happened so just to be taken away from home at that point and live that very basic sparse regimented life and also being very very sick at the the same time that must have had a huge impact on her and she was actually told not to to exert herself physically because this uh, rheumatic fever left a scar on her heart and she actually had an irregular heartbeat. So there's quite a lot of concern about you know, how, how she would fare in later life. And, and she was told, don't, don't push yourself if you cycle, don't, don't walk up the hills, don't exert yourself. And she just took absolutely no, no notice of that whatsoever. <laughs> no, it was obviously just completely, once she got the bug of, of competing and racing, she just 
put that to the back of her mind. She didn't even tell her daughter about her child as illness until her daughter was in her 30s. She didn't know about it. So she just had this ability to shut out what she didn't want to think about. And as you say, that real tough day-to-day discipline was so evident. And she she was a very sort of hard in her outlook and, you know, in the way that she brought up her daughter as well, Denise, you know, she very much, it was a very much sort of get on with it mentality. And uh, I think that was probably quite characteristic of a lot of people coming out of the war and, and maybe quite Yorkshire in her sort of lack of sentiment for things, but just really... Everything was all about the next day, the next task. But her her day-to-day life really was quite extraordinarily tough when you think about it because she was working full-time on a rhubarb farm, labouring manually day-to-day. She had a young child, uh, had a child, a baby at 18, and then was bringing her up along with the cycling and was basically doing all this training uh, as well as... as well as running this sort of household in a very kind of traditional way. She, she was a, apparently a sort of whirlwind around the house in terms of keeping everything perfect. And then also this very hard job that she did. And then on top of that, the cycling, where her sort of mentality to training was miles, more miles, and worked incredibly hard in terms of her, her cycling as well. So she had a real a real toughness to her outlook, which I'm sure was shaped by her, her childhood. Her brother told me that you know, it was a quite Victorian sort of values in terms of the family home. You know, their father was quite disciplinarian, you know, quite tough. You know, they all would help with the sort of household tasks. Uh, the parents were out of the house a lot during the, the war you know, because they were involved with jobs at that point her mother actually drove ambulances around Leeds during the war so it was it was a you know a sort of mentality if you want something you have to go out and get it for yourself and you got yourself everywhere you went you know she walked or cycled everywhere she went so I think that definitely was ingrained in her and you could certainly hear it in interviews in later life when she was sort of asked why she was so good and why perhaps people couldn't beat her records for so long she would sound she would sound quite unsympathetic in her answers you know it would it would be very much along the the lines of you know people don't work hard enough these days and you know you've got to i can't understand how people need to to sort of rest before they train and all this sort of thing she was very she didn't think you needed to sort of wait for the weather to be good to go out on your bike. Uh, I saw some letters that she she wrote to people and they were extraordinary, really. It's sort of regale stories of us driving through Knaresborough in sort of a foot of snow at six o'clock in the morning. And it was just with the um, <laughs> cycling through Knaresborough, I should say, not driving. She never drove. She cycled everywhere and, uh, you know, just out with the sort of milk floats of a morning in really quite Arctic conditions. But she would just get on with her training whenever it fitted in around a sort of home life and um, and work life. So I, I can understand that. I'm sure she could have been better if she'd have had a bit more advice about rest and different things that we understand better now. But I also think there's quite a lot in her mentality that is probably quite useful as well for even modern day athletes to, to look at because uh, she did the basics very well that, that's for sure the sort of fundamentals of her approach to cycling was was, was so pure and you know I don't, I don't think she missed a training session unless she was sort of physically incapable of um, 
going out on the bike. That sort of um, it reminds me very much both of the kind of pitchy paint of um, of Britain and, and Leeds at that time in her life at that time uh, in the twentieth century, um, and also her training values with kind of the Flandrian situation, uh, probably a similar post-war. Uh, sort of like feeling in the area, um, very hard living, really, really cold and crappy weather, just like we've got here. And then you've got people like uh, Roger de Vlamink who would, you know, suggest or not even suggest, openly kind of say, yeah, I just do 240k motor pace before breakfast. And you're like, this is this is your day off. And, you know, Eddie Merckx with his, well, how do you get so good, Eddie? Well, you just ride lots. And <laughs> something I think that they do, and I think that you mentioned, um, you mentioned in your book that Beryl did, was because you you know money was tight, races are far away, and cars are expensive. You you cycle to a race in order to compete, to go to win, and then cycle back again, which is one thing. But another brilliant story that you allude to in the book is Beryl cycling something like uh, four, you know forty miles, seventy kilometers to uh, Tom Simpson's funeral, whereupon she stood there next to none other than Eddie Merckx. So. It's a very tenuous way of moving into the subject of Eddie Merckx met Beryl Burton. What did Eddie make of Beryl? Do we know? <laughs> we do, it's hard to know exactly. They, they, funnily enough, they, um, they, when Ruler did their Hall of Fame, they were the first two inductees. So De, Beryl's daughter, Denise, and Eddie Merckx were on a, a stage together a few years ago in London. And um, there, there was a fan who... who um, who had spoken to Eddie Merckx about Beryl Burton, and they said that he he said that she was she was the boss of us all was the, was what she said and, and called her incredible. I, that was a, a secondhand quote. I, 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 I'd say that it's in it's in the book. That was what he told a, an English fan about her. But he would have been very aware of her because obviously their their careers really co. In nineteen sixty seven, Beryl won her second world championship. That was the year that she broke the men's and women's record for 12 hours. And uh, that was also the year Tom Simpson died. And, and I believe Eddie Merckx won one of his World Road Race Championships that year as well. So they did very much coincide in terms of when they were at their, at their absolute peak. And there was such a comparison as well in the way that they rode and would just demolish fields. You know, Beryl's two World Road Races, she just rode away from the field by several minutes and, and won the races alone. And they were only... The women's road race at that point was only about 50 kilometres in the world championships. And people just say, goodness only knows how much she would have won by had had the races been of a similar distance to today. Or had you had a women's Tour de France equivalent, because that would have, because she was so, she, she did so many miles and was so tough over long distances you can only imagine she would have been minutes, maybe maybe hours ahead of her rivals by the end of, of a race like that. Because the races that she did on the world scene, the, the pursuit, the, the races where she won seven world titles was five pursuits and two road races. They weren't really what suited her because she didn't have great turn of pace. Where she was at her best was over, you know, if she'd been doing the sort of classics, the monument type races, or as I say, a grand tour, or a time trial, they they were really her her events, and she didn't really have much to go at like that. So, definitely a real comparison with Eddie Merckx in the way that she just destroyed fields, just rode at the front. There wasn't a great deal of tactics in her road racing, and that became a problem to her in later life. You know, when people got to know her and were able to stay with her because she didn't, as I say, she didn't have much of a 
much of a sprint at all. But um, yeah, very similar in her, her outlook, I think, to Eddie Merckx. As you say, she rode everywhere. So there's, there is that lovely picture of her in a rain mat because it was an atrocious day, apparently, Tom Simpson's funeral, um, weather-wise. And she was in a, in a rain mat just stood by the... You know, graveside with 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 Eddie Merckx. He's he's suited in you know in a in a suit and a black tie for this funeral. But the stories of sort of Beryl cycling everywhere are kind of legend, and I would, I still sort of receive messages today of you know I saw her doing this or I saw her cycling there or or here. But she would if she did a time trial in London, which was you know say a fifty mile time trial in the morning, she would cycle back to Leeds, which was one hundred and seventy miles up the A one. Uh, she got kicked off. <laughs> she got kicked when the when the A1 got turned into a motorway. She didn't realise it had been turned into a motorway, and she got stopped by the police and thrown off the motorway. And she had to actually climb over the grass verge and uh, sort of find some other back road because cyclists weren't uh, at some point in the sort of seventies when she was doing this quite often. It became illegal to ride on the A1 motorway, and but she didn't realise that. And uh, as I say in the book as well. There's these stories of her doing this almost motor-paced riding in the roads to York and Doncaster, which were quite fast sort of A roads. Uh, and she would she would ride in and out of the wagons and lorries and sort of jump in behind them. And, uh, you know, they'd be going about the right pace for her, about 30, 40 miles an hour. So it was almost interval training without quite knowing what she was doing. But she obviously was quite smart in understanding that that was helping her because she would do this great variety of training, you know, long, long, steady miles riding to all these races, but also really quite intense and hard, long, long rides through the Yorkshire Dales as well. But yeah, she, she was, a, she, she loved her bike. You know, she'd go on to, to work, to the shops by bike. If she was going to a presentation night, she, she, she'd get invited to all these club presentation dinners at the end of the, the season. And she would, if they were within about 50 miles, she'd cycle there, put her dress for the evening in the saddlebag, you know, get changed at this sort of dinner dance event in a sort of village hall or whatever, help with the washing up and then cycle home after the the, the race with the, you know, with her lights on. So that was, that was how she got around and how she wanted to get around. She never showed any interest in learning how to, to drive. That's for, that's for sure. <laughs> A good friend once told me, race on the road and you train on the turbo. But is the turbo trainer the best tool for the job these days? Well, the Watt Bike Adam is a dedicated smart bike to make indoor training more engaging and fun. It's really convenient so you get the most out of your indoor miles. No switching bikes, wearing down bike components or slipping gears. The Atom is a simply a plug and play setup with all the data you need to get the most out of your training. It has a smaller footprint than a full turbo setup, so it fits in even the most compact spaces. The first Watt bike was developed alongside British Cycling and was a crucial tool for Team GB's success at the 2008 Olympics, helping to identify talent and quantify it with immense accuracy for training. And the Watt bike Atom Smart Bike builds on that original Watt bike platform to bring industry-leading accuracy and intelligent pedaling analysis and training. These together combine to help riders develop not just power and stamina, but pedaling efficiency too. I love its real-world feel, right down to the Atom's proper-feeling gear shifters. Plus, I can connect it to my favorite training apps like Zwift or just plug-and-play with Wattbike's free workout and training plan platform, the Wattbike Hub app. 
So claim £250 off the Watt Bike Atom today with code CYCLIST250 and apply that at checkout on wattbike.com. That's CYCLIST250 applied at the checkout on wattbike.com. We hear about ketones in the Pro Peloton, but what are they? According to experts at HVMN, ketones are a natural source of fuel for your body. Studies show that ketones are 28% more efficient than glucose, making them a super efficient fuel source for your long rides and races. These benefits led HVMN to create Ketone IQ, which is a drinkable ketone designed to support energy, focus and endurance. It's developed alongside the US military and Ketone IQ is one of the most powerful ketone supplements on the market. It's designed to elevate your ketone levels for up to four hours, which is much longer than other products. Plus, it's caffeine-free, it's compliant with the World Anti-Doping Agency guidelines, and that's a major win for athletes. Ketone IQ shots are the best way to get your ketones on the go. What I love about them is they're portable and they fit so perfectly and neatly in my jersey pocket during a ride. So visit hvmn.com and use promo code CYCLIST at the checkout to save 20%. And to learn more about achieving your ultimate metabolic potential, subscribe to HVMN's podcast, Health via Modern Nutrition, which is hosted by Dr. Lat Mansour. That's on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube. So visit hvmn.com and use the promo code CYCLIST at the checkout to save 20%. I know you touched on the idea of the prevailing training wisdom around then was just ride and ride a lot. But uh, you mentioned as part of your research, you spoke to team Ineos physiologist, Tim Kershen, and you kind of went back and retrospectively analyzed the types of training she was doing. She was a lot more progressive in her training philosophies than some of her peers. She was building in rest periods, interval periods, motor pacing periods, and long endurance periods as well. Yeah, it was a real, it was really interesting that I, I spent some time, I was lucky to spend some time with Tim Kerrison previously when he was preparing some of the team Skyriders and we were chatting about his um, sort of philosophy and he was very much, two, two things that he said that I thought really applied to Beryl, or three things actually. One, the variation in training. And if you looked at what she did, she had incredible variation in training because she did so many steady miles, just going to and from holidays, off season, literally sort of transportation cycling, just going to anything, but building up a lot of miles doing that. Then there'd be these really undulating hard rides through the Yorkshire Dales, as you said, this motor pace stuff. Um, she She would do track racing as well once a week which would cycle actually out to the, the track, where she, which was about in itself 30 or 40 miles away, and then race a tr- sort of track league of an evening. So she's doing a, a huge variety of training without, I don't know how much she sort of worked it all out, but she, I think it was just she loved cycling, so she would just do everything available to her. So there was that variation. And one thing Tim Kerrison was sort of said to me was, I think he got a bit frustrated, was my sense, by the kind of marginal gains thing that was always in the media about his work. And he was sort of like, nail the basics. You know, okay, okay, marginal gains is great, but nail the basics. That's the key thing. And there's some very basic things in cycling that you have to nail. And, you know, there are obviously things like a lot of time on the bike and maybe diet as well. 
So, so there's those two things. And the other thing that he mentioned was about environment as well and, and how you know one of the reasons they set up their base in Monaco was because they wanted to have riders together, often with professionals. They might be dotted around Europe a bit. And, and he was saying that was quite a big thing to create an environment. He said, there was a quote, he said, we're social architects because you, you understand what it is to, to succeed in your event and then you create the environment that, that gives you the best chance of doing that. And I think without knowing it, this was he, he didn't say this in relation to Beryl. It was obviously, I'm, I'm applying what he said about Ineos Sky to Beryl. But when he said about environment, it really got me thinking because she actually happened upon this wonderful environment for cycling. Obviously, Yorkshire, a real hotbed, you know, still is obviously with, you know, about Pidcock and... Lizzie Dynan and there's still they're still churning out lots of really good cyclists from Yorkshire the Brownlee brothers in triathlon and uh, it was like that after the war as well it always has been it's a real hotbed for cycling and they were really welcoming it was quite progressive towards women which wasn't the case everywhere in the country at that point women were banned from a lot of cycling clubs in Britain in post-war years and, and also because she became so good was really respected um, by the male cyclists there so you had it was a period when people like Brian Robinson Barry Hoban obviously we mentioned Tom Simpson was on the Yorkshire border in Nottinghamshire so you had a real um, great environment there for for someone like Beryl as well that it wasn't she didn't just have to do it she, she did like to do all her training most of her training on her own but she had a wonderful sort of environment to progress and really good cyclists mostly men that she would she would ride with or race against around her so you could definitely apply a lot of um what people think about now for training to to her as i say how much she figured it out i'm I'm not sure but she she was obviously intuitively really smart about her training um another guy i spoke to is a guy called jamie pringle who was a sports scientist with British Olympians and he talked about that sort of capacity to do a lot of work as well and sort of said Beryl must have had a very strong kind of constitution and that was probably helped by what she did on the farm day to day as well because he said it's one thing there's one thing sort of working out what it is to do but it's another thing that your body can take it basically and um, I mean Beryl's daughter Denise would say there's no way I could have trained like my mother you know I had to do it in a completely different way so she obviously did have this great inherent physical strength, which, as I say, it seemed like it was influenced quite a lot by this manual work that she did on the farm and maybe just her outlook mentally as well. So she could absorb a lot of work as well. But yeah, it was really interesting to speak to those guys about the things they do now and um, and to relate it back. But most of the people I spoke to, they were big on that. I think they sometimes, because in the media, we, you know, and I'm guilty of it as well in stuff that I write about, you know, you sometimes, you like to write about that sort of secret pillow or the, the bed or, the, you know, the thing that's like <laughs> sort of doing something special to, and, you know, maybe that does help a sort of tiny minutiae of a percent, but really they were saying, do the basics well, nail the, the big stuff. And as I say, with her diet, very pure diet, she ate, she'd never eat processed foods, never drink alcohol very much fruit, vegetables, meat, basic carbohydrates. And so I think there was a lot in the basics that she was doing in her day-to-day life and her training that were absolutely any sort of modern-day sports scientist would would put a big tick next to. And presumably, rhubarb, 
that would have been a massive factor in her diet. And I'm sure that that would have made the difference. But Jeremy, I just want to direct your attention to two brilliant quotes, uh, critiques, if you will, um, of your book. The first is uh, from, it's underneath a Goodreads um, set of reviews. Uh, and it says, brilliant, but I am the author's father and he is very much still alive. <laughs> so that's presumably written by your dad because you're not to be confused with Jeremy Wilson, the British historian who died in 2017, <laughs> which I thought was just a, a beautiful little gem. I didn't know about that, yeah. <laughs> he told me about that yesterday. He said, oh, he, he emailed me that and said, oh, there's something there that says you're you're not alive anymore. I was like, oh, right. And, yeah, and you just to- missed the main man as well, James. We had a pleasure of meeting his dad before uh, the podcast started. Oh, no way. I'm gutted. I'm gutted. <laughs> Jer- well, Jeremy Wilson, the historian, was writing books about Lawrence of Arabia, and you've done different type of books, let's say, of a different era. Um, but another brilliant, and it's a quote that sums up exactly everything we've been talking about. It's from the judges at William Hill that praised your book for its exhaustive research um, and superb writing, but it's the research thing. And Anthony and I know this from being, you know, with our journalism hats on, it's all about the research. And you went to insane lengths not just to talk to people who knew her, to you know get some background, some kind of context from the likes of Tim Kerrison, but you went to the efforts of sourcing a bicycle, a woman who is about the same size as Beryl, giving her a Beryl-style haircut <laughs> and Beryl Burton clothing, and put her in a wind tunnel to work out just how fast Beryl would be today. So can you kind of Talk us through, A, where on earth he sourced these people, these willing volunteers in this kit from, and B, you know, what were the findings uh, from this experiment? Yeah, well, I suppose it goes back to that. You know, we talked about the in search of Britain's greatest athlete, and I was kind of thinking, is there a way to sort of measure what she did against modern day cycling? And I, I did, one of the people I spoke to was Chris Boardman, and he, we were talking about his, because he obviously had that hour record where he did the athletes hour and then the one on the superman bike and i think there was about six or seven kilometers between them uh, i need to double check that i think that's correct so it got me thinking about you know, what would beryl have done uh, on a on a modern day time trial setup and also how easy would that be to find out and um i spoke to a guy called dr xavier disley who works with a few professional teams and i think he works with amateur cyclists as well who want some help with their setup and obviously a lot of this stuff can be measured he, he tries to invent things as well to to improve um aerodynamics and he he uses the wind tunnel at silverstone fairly regularly to do this so i sort of asked him you know we know what beryl did on a road bike you know if we were to measure how much slower the steel road bike that she would have done all her time trialing on is compared to the modern day bike could we could we make pretty good estimates of what she would have done and he was like yeah absolutely we just need we need a bike as close as possible and we need a rider as close as possible and the clothes need to be right as well so um fortunately uh during my research i did discover that some of beryl's original bikes were still being looked after by a guy called dave marsh who's a who has his own cycle shop in in yorkshire so I asked him whether I could borrow it. I thought, you know, obviously the geometry on most road bikes would be pretty similar, but I thought if we could get Beryl's actual bike, that would be extra extra special for it. And um, it took a little bit of persuasion because it was his sort of prized possession and, and he'd kept it absolutely immaculate as well. It was this uh, steel rally bike with seven, 753 tubing, the old steel Reynolds 753 steel tubing, and it had... Um, 
the Campagnola record group set on. So it was a beautiful of its time. It was obviously the absolute top bike that you could that you could get and he'd kept it pristinely as well so anyway he 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 knew Beryl and so he was interested to he kind of bought into the experiment a bit as, as well so he was persuaded to let me use the bike for the day and uh then we just had to get a rider and Xavier said well we need someone similar build and if you can get the clothing and he did actually, he was joking when he said, and maybe a wig. And I thought, well, yeah, we can get a wig. So we, <laughs> the wig we got was a little bit, um, had a bit more volume to the curls than it than, than Beryl really did because she always had her hair cut really short when she um, raced. So I had to get the clippers out on this wig. So it looked ridiculous, like I had it on a chair cutting it the night before we did the test. But actually when it when the, the wig, and, and we got one of the Morley, cycling club original jerseys as well from one of the uh riders there a guy called malcolm cowgill he lent me the the, the, the jersey that they wore and actually when the the uh, person that was going to be beryl for the day jessica rhodes jones who's a, a very good time trialist domestically now she um she walked out with the beryl kit on and she looked really quite similar to beryl there's pictures in the book and uh anyway so she rode for about 20 minutes, half an hour until Xavier had got whatever he needed in terms of the uh, aerodynamic drag that, that she was carrying um, on the on the barrel bike with the Morley clothing, with the wig, and then did exactly the same thing with her, you know, her modern skin suit, the, the socks, the helmet, and the bike that she now uses, a carbon Cervelo. Uh, bike it was called and uh you know obviously with the with the tri bars and uh from there he was able to sort of they have this measurement of drag and um i think it's to, to people who are really into this sort of stuff it's quite a reasonably well-known measurement that you can use to look at your setup and so he was able to take Beryl's drag coefficient and then take the one from the air the super aerodynamic position and basically model her times using the faster bike. And uh, basically, so so we were only just allowing for clothing and and the bike, nothing else. So we weren't allowing for sort of obviously change in training or any other advances. But he found that basically Beryl's um, times for 25-mile record, 50-mile record, 100-mile record, and the 12-hour record would still be ahead of the current records today so that's sort of more than 50 years on that her records would have survived um all of that time so it's just i mean they did survive the aerodynamic revolution largely anyway because the 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 big change was in the late 80s early 90s with the aero bikes and uh aero bars i know that they would have improved further since then but that was the big the big change it seems and uh, her records did stand way quite a way beyond that anyway. And uh, even her 12-hour record, it, it was only broken in 2017 after 50 years. So I wasn't completely surprised because it was obvious that her records were completely out there. I mean, if you mark them against the men's records at the time, they were very close to the men's records at the time. Obviously, the 12-hour one for two years was, was faster. But I think it just showed what an incredible athlete she was because even in sort of swimming or or athletics, in sort of marathon running or any of those type of distances, the, the difference between the improvement from the sort of 60s and 70s to today 
even when you don't when you take out the kind of technological stuff that you have in cycling is massive and that's obviously the sports science the diet the understanding of training we weren't allowing for any of that we were literally just picking up beryl from the 60s and 70s and effectively plonking her on a modern setup and she was still that good so i think it kind of underlined what an incredible athlete it was and you know I didn't have any influence on the test at all you know I said to him whatever they they find and it they it did find that at 10 miles I should say that Hayley Simmons record they they reckon Beryl would be third on the all-time list at 10 miles she didn't race 10 miles as seriously because in that time um the 10 mile time trial wasn't even a national championship until the late 70s it was for whatever reason it was kind of considered a bit of a beginner's event so she she wasn't quite as serious about that distance but it also fitted because Beryl was better as the distances went up. So, And, and it, we did find that as the distances went up, she was progressively further away from the current records. You know, it was quite close with Hayley Simmons um, over 10, 25 and 50, but Beryl was ahead over 25 and 50. And then the gaps in 112 hours were really quite still, still fairly big. The whole story is such a perfect story arc. Like, I'm thinking about comic books. If you think about Superman, and if he has no flaw, if he's just the strongest man in the world, he can kill everyone. It's not a very interesting story. But then we introduce Kryptonite. All of a sudden, we really connect to this story. Beryl has those underlying health issues, which are kind of her Kryptonite, which make us really connect to her and kind of want to root for her. But then what I'm wondering is, Batman has Joker. Armstrong had Ulrich. Pogaccia has Roglic was there a big rivalry at the time that Beryl had or was she just in a league of her own no there was a massive rivalry um so on the global stage as I say she was completely on a league of her own domestically I mean nobody could beat her especially you know among the women even as I say she was beating the best men quite regularly as well but internationally um there was a rider called Yvonne Renders a Belgian rider and she also won seven world titles during the 1960s. And Beryl and her would routinely go toe-to-toe in the road race and the pursuit. So Beryl got the better of her in most of the pursuits. Um, but Yvonne Renders tended to be better in the road race because she had a better sprint finish, basically. So the the, the races were quite, would follow a certain pattern where Beryl would either... If Beryl got away, that was the end of the story because she was far superior time trialist to Yvonne Renders and far stronger as well over longer distances. But Yvonne Renders rode a lot of criteriums in Belgium and was a very good track rider. So she was her, she was Beryl's match for speed. And certainly, so so the world championship events of that time um, suited Yvonne Renders better than Beryl because it was a three kilometre pursuit and a road race. But as I say, Beryl uh, Beryl won, uh, I think Yvonne Renders' world championships broke down of two pursuits and five world road race. And Beryl was the other way around, five pursuits and two world road race. It might be Renders three and four, but she certainly was more world road race and less pursuits. Um, so that was a great rivalry for Beryl. And I actually visited Yvonne Renders for, as part of the book and had a lovely afternoon with her in Antwerp. She's in her mid-80s now, but quite a character um she she likes a beer actually <laughs> so we had a few beer a few a few strong <laughs> belgian beers and uh, it was interesting because you realized what an emotional connection that kind of um sport has with people you know because obviously at the time 
they probably there was a bit of I wish the other one wasn't there because that one stopping me win quite as much as I would have done but she got when I showed her photographs of Beryl she got quite tearful and it was quite you know quite emotional really for her to to talk about Beryl um, because they'd obviously had this intense rivalry but didn't know each other that well because she spoke Flemish Beryl was obviously from Yorkshire just spoke English so they kind of had this slightly distant relationship but she sort of said it was I think any sports person would understand that there's a there's an emotional connection there that kind of goes beyond language or anything else when someone's been that big a rival to you for for that amount of time so that was great I mean as I say I'm still very much of the belief that Beryl was a superior all-round cyclist because they were seven all but they were really in Yvonne Render's events you know, whereas Beryl didn't really get the chance to do her events, but she is obviously another, her very best events, I should say, but they, she was obviously another phenomenal cyclist. And the other rivals as well, really, were the Soviet Union riders um, who came along and they were really dominant in women's sport, obviously, at that time. Um, they had a state-sponsored system, you know, it was very similar to the kind of Olympic systems that we know of now where riders are, are sponsored they all train in the same place and it's full time, it's full on. And that was how Soviet sport was organised after the war. And that was how all the riders that Beryl and Yvonne Renders were, were riding against operated. So there were some really good Soviet riders as well. And they, they became more dominant in the, in the 70s. But in the 60s, it was very much Beryl and Yvonne Renders who were the best, the best two in the world uh, in women's cycling. Didn't the Soviets send uh, a couple of operatives to spy on Beryl at the rhubarb <laughs> farm to find out what was going on. This is another, I mean, it's an incredible story. Again, it obviously is to second hand, but I've got no reason to disbelieve it. And I actually spoke to one of the, um, the daughter of one of the coaches of the Soviet Union. There's a, a chapter on the Soviet Union, which I found fascinating to learn about their sort of system and how they went about it. And she said it was, a, she didn't know the story herself, this daughter, but she said it was an entirely believable story because there was such a national um, pride and such a national thing after the Second World War for the Soviet Union to be the best at sport. And the government were really, you know, it's obviously a time of the Cold War and all this geopolitics. The government were ready to throw quite a lot at that to make sure that 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 was happening. And they were intrigued by Beryl and what she did because she was the one rider that could, in the road races as well, just literally ride their best riders off their their wheels. So um, there's this story. It, it came via Sheila Waddington, who worked with Beryl on the farm and was also in the Morley Cycling Club. And she just kept said they turned up one morning. They wanted to know what she did, had a little look around the farm, and then off they went. <laughs> and uh, whether they were in, I don't know, I must say, I say this in the book, I don't know if they were solely in the UK for that purpose they'd literally come from from the soviet union just to look around the farm and whether there was another because there were international races sometimes in the uk and they made a detour to come and come and see it but it's an amazing anecdote it shows how much they respected her and also obviously how much they were serious about dominating sport at that time you know they were kind of crossing every t and dotting every i and in the same way i suppose as you could imagine you know, maybe Team Sky would have done something similar if there was a rival that they wanted to understand that was that was so good 
so yeah, it's an amazing story. Beryl seemed to have quite a good relationship with the, you know, there was a sort of mutual respect there. And um, she was invited actually to go and race and cycle there and train with them. Uh, but she never received the letters. They, they went to the British Cycling Federation and they didn't, they didn't pass them on to Beryl. And she was really annoyed about this, apparently, when she found out because she was, she was interested to, to go and spend time with the Soviet riders as well because obviously they couldn't communicate. And at the World Championships, the Soviets were told not to interact with the other nations. So again, there was this, this sort of standoff between them. But I suppose because they were seeing each other year in, year out, there seemed to be a bit of an understanding, a bit of empathy kind of developed between them. But um, I don't think the British Cycling Federation, they were famously miserly throughout Beryl's years in terms of funding anything for women cycling. All, nearly all the money would go to the men's teams. So I don't think they wanted her to know about these possible trips to, to race in the Soviet Union because they might have they might have been asked to stump up some money which they, they didn't want to do basically jeremy it's a fascinating book and it's a brilliant story thoroughly well researched congratulations on your sports book of the year award and i've already picked up a couple of uh, copies for presents for christmas and uh, thanks for joining us on the cyclist magazine podcast oh thank you very much for having me thanks jeremy thank you james so jeremy wilson it I'm just shocked by the level of detail, chatting with friends, private letters, training regimes. I I have this burning desire, as all of us think, oh, there's a book in me somewhere. But when I think about the level of research in that, I, I just don't know if I could bring myself to it. No, I mean, and that's the thing. And I think you alluded to it, um, or we've talked about it before. Like You haven't done things like, was it Jamondi who um, was cycling papers um, around war-torn Europe during the Second Gino World Bartley. War? Bartley, yeah, there. Like we, I haven't done that. I mean, you know, I went to the shops on my bike once, and I, <laughs> I managed. I've managed to get basically a whole roast tucked into my jersey pockets, including a chicken and potatoes. But that is about the strength of the strange, weird little things that I've done on my bike. And I know what you mean. Like there is someone like Beryl has just an insane wealth, an insane mind to kind of draw from. Partly because she competed for so long, but. She was clearly one of those just life's unique people where she could have done anything. She probably could have been just a post, not just, but, you know, a teacher or a postal worker or something and still had an incredible life. You get that sense sometimes of people, don't you? One of the amazing uh, sort of experiments that Jeremy performed was this idea of taking a, like a replica of Beryl, for want of a better word, into the wind tunnel to project how fast she would be in modern terms. And it is shocking how competitive she would be considering it's not possible in his, you know, crude model to account for changes in sports science, changes in nutrition, recovery protocols. Like we've moved on so far, even in the last 10, 15 years in all those areas. I would throw it out to Jeremy, having just done this, he's established a testing protocol now at Silverstone, um, which, by the way, anyone can go and use Silverstone, which is quite fun. Uh, it probably cost you several thousand pounds and it will make you... I've actually used it. Oh, really? Did it make yeah. you... You look faster, I've got to say. You, they asked you to trim your hair, I imagine. <laughs> I used it in... I was at a university in Dublin, quite a big university, UCD, and they paid for me for some wind tunnel time. 
like one of my first years on the bike, we had way too much budget and far too few riders. <laughs> <laughs> so I got a chance to go over there. Oh, wow. That, I mean, that's pretty amazing. That deserves a deep dive another day. But what I was going to say is now that Jeremy's sort of set up his test protocol, the first one is going to be difficult. The second one should be easy. And we, because we can finally, we can get some Elvis wigs and we can get some people that are approximately, I don't know what he was, about six foot two, perhaps. Um, and we can answer that age old question just how fast was Eddie Merckx and would he be beating Pogaccio and people like that today? And I want Jeremy to be doing that with everyone as far back as Maurice Garin, who was the first winner of the Tour de France in 1903. Because I feel like, I don't know, maybe I'm drawing too many conclusions here. There isn't a linear relationship, but it sounds to me that, you know, the older you are, more of a double R bastard you were, so the faster you'd be today. So someone from the 1900s, they've got to be speedy. I love that was kind of a, a beautifully polite British way of uh, a good news sandwich where you're on the one hand said, Eddie Merckx might be the greatest rider of all time, but also said, well, we can't use him now because he's too fat to put in the wind. So we need to get someone like he used to look. Well, I mean, Eddie would be the first one to say that as a professional sports person, one's weight fluctuates um, post-retirement. <laughs> But I've, I've, have you ever have you ever met Eddie Merckx? No, if I did, that'd be just mic drop done. There you go. Well, I'm just going to drop it in for you now. I'm just totally going to fit. I'm going to round this off by telling you that I met Eddie Merckx. I've met him on a couple of occasions. One of them was brilliant because he was clearly paid to show up to an, a race in Belgium, like a Grand Fondo sort of thing that bore his name. And he just could not be, I say, anyway, it's Christmas. He could not be fucked. He sat there <laughs> on this little plastic. It was like the most inauspicious thing. Because if you imagine, I don't know, I don't like him, but Ronaldo, oh, Messi, Messi's a better example. Someone who earns, you know, who is, who is the absolute greatest in their sport and possibly one of the greatest athletes of all time. Imagine them sitting in a plastic patio chair next to the side of a stadium, like waving people in really lazily whilst they're simultaneously chatting to their rolly smoking mate. <laughs> like It was like the most inauspicious thing for the greatest cyclist we've ever seen. But I did meet him on another occasion at his factory, um, which is no longer his factory, Eddie Merck Cycles, blah, 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 another podcast in there somewhere, I'm sure. But he's a kind of ambassador. And uh, it was a bit, you know, standoffish at the beginning. But by the end of the interview, I kid you not, I asked, I said to Eddie, I bet Eddie, you've met, they say that Mick Jagger has seen more people on earth than anyone else because he's played to such massive stadiums. And I was like, I bet you've seen more people because of how many people line the roads of the Tour de France and everything else. And he went, yeah, he thought about it. And he went, thing is, I just really like the Beatles. And I was like, you like the Beatles? I love the Beatles. What's your favorite song? Um, And then he started, what did he start? He started singing, um, Either Lady Madonna, what was it? Either Lady Madonna or Hey Jude. And then without even thinking, I started joining in. And me and Eddie were singing the Beatles together. And it was the end of this interview. I was like, this is why I love you, Eddie. This is why I've always known you are the greatest. It's just the making of either a very good drunken night story there or a viral TikTok clip. I'm not sure, but I think maybe that's a good <laughs> jump off point for this episode. Uh, amazing chatting with Jeremy Wilson, and I'd highly recommend everyone picks up a copy of his amazing book, Profiling Britain's Burlborn. This episode of the Cyclist Magazine podcast is brought to you by HVMN's Ketone IQ.